We just finished reading the portion known as Vayetze. Vayetze is um, from Genesis, Vereshis chapter 28, verse 10, and it went all the way through to 32 and verse 3. Our goal again today is to kind of cram into one hour as much as we can for understanding what the rabbinic expectation is and what the rabbis have thought regarding the person of Messiah from the pages of the Torah. We're going to be looking oftentimes at what they have said, their commentaries. We're going to be looking at alternative writings or paraphrases of this text because it adds richness and depth to it. I think it's important to realize that as we've been looking generationally speaking, with Arachim, we find with him a... uh, a description of Messiah, really, in the sense that we begin to see the one who's coming as the son of promise. That there's going to be a lot of things strikes against him coming. There's going to be a lot of things that would seem to say, impossible, he can't come. Yet, we do know that he did. The son of promise was, of course, Yitzchak. And we could say that every time now another person appears on the scene or another generation comes up, we have another testimony of to the, as to the who, who the person of Messiah is. This is important for us for many, many reasons. But the thing I want us to take away from this is that there's never been a generation in which the witness of God's work on this earth has gone unnoticed. We could say, well, what about the generation's while we were enslaved in Egypt, where it seemed that there was a silence on the part of God. We might even say, what about the, succeed, the, the preceding generations from this one, where for many centuries it seems that God has been silent on the issue? Yet, let us not forget, the very essence of Torah has been our lot, has been our example, has been our uh, guidebook, has been our measuring rod. The essence of Torah still is ours and has been from the very beginning. As we look at the leaving of the land of promise, you may recall Yitzchak was not to leave the land. Last week as you studied this, we said Yitzchak was told not to leave the land. His father did not want him to leave. And later on, God spoke directly to Yitzchak himself saying, you will not leave this land. Therefore, you get the idea that it was very important at least he remained there. We talked about why that was. As a messianic type in a shadow, it would be very important for him, who was, according to the sages, the sacrifice, who could not leave the precincts of the land. If he did so, it would invalidate all that had taken place. You know, it's interesting to me, as we now look at his son, Yaakov, the unlikely son, who would be the one carrying the promise. Remember, Logically speaking, Esau was the guy. He was the guy who was the most physically fit. He was the guy who, you know, everywhere he went, people took note. He's the guy skilled in weapons. This man knew how to handle himself in a conflict. You would think that if there's going to be a predominance of the nation of Israel, well, it wasn't Israel yet, but the nation which was Avraham and Yitzchak's nation that was going to come, it was going to be the predominant nation on the earth, You'd think that it'd have to have somebody very, very powerful. And logically speaking, he was looking for, they were all looking for, someone to be the strong, street-wizened or field-wizened hunter, you might say. Yet, the unlikely, the smooth-skinned, the the soft-spoken, the one remaining behind, the one who dwelt in tents, this is the one that God had chosen to be the son of promise. 
You remember this all from last week, and I want to just now jump into this idea here. After having obtained the blessing as well as the birthright, the natural reaction from Esau was anger. And Esau does make the statement, and I asked, I was asking my son earlier this week, I said, so tell me, why do you think Esau was not about to hurt his brother right then and there? Why didn't he just go after him and try to kill him? Why did he say he was going to wait until such time as his father wasn't around? And, um, you know, he scratched his head a little bit and he says, well, I, you know, you tend to think that maybe it was because he respected Yitzchak, but then when you think about it, his next words were, may my father die quickly so that I may kill him. He really didn't want his father to live. He didn't really want his father to be around. So for whatever reason, he was going after Yaakov. That was um, really between uh, him and God at this point. We will never really know that, I don't think. But Yaakov is fleeing. He's on his way out. He stops at a place that's fascinating. It mentions that this was near uh, a Canaanite area, uh, which we know as Luz. The word Luz is used there in the text. It refers to the fact that he came and stopped in a place which was formerly known as Luz. This is a fascinating city, and in previous years as we have done this study, we have done a quite a bit on the city itself and all of the traditions. There were nine major traditions which we culled and pulled out of the rabbis' writings with regard to this particular city. Nine major traditions. But it's where this is located that is so important, and it's also very controversial. You'll find that there are evangelical commentators and others who state very openly that there is no way this is the place where the rabbis assume it to be. They just out and out state the rabbis are dead wrong. In fact, one commentator said, even going against the plain text of the scripture, the rabbis liken this to be, this, that they think this place was later to be called Jerusalem. Well, beloved, this is the same place. Luz was the same place which at one time referred to as Salem, which is known as Yevus, or Jebus, as your translation may render it. This is a place which was known as the city of Melchizedek. This is the same place that Avraham brought Yitzchak to sacrifice him in the same location. It is fairly simple to draw, to connect the dots using the scripture, that this is the same place. But for now, we're not going to do that because my promise this year is that we're going to try our best to remain focused upon things which we have not considered in previous years. I just want to make the statement at the outset that we have a very fascinating place here. It is the place that Yitzchak was offered up here on the altar before God and then saved and the, the ram was substituted for him. It is the same place. And so it's appropriate then as he lays down to sleep in this location, he takes a stone and puts his head upon the stone and he begins to dream. We're trying to see in Yaakov any kind of... Um, messianic shadow or implication or type. So I want you to look at the actions that he's doing in this passage and see if we can't find images that would jump out at us as being parallel to or representative of things that the one we know to be Mashiach, Yeshua of Nazareth, that he performed. But let's go on. I think it's interesting that on the way out of the land, there are going to be angels he encounters. 
And at the end of our Parsha today, on the way into the land, there are angels that he encounters also. We'll talk about that, God willing, at the end of our study. But first I want to just make sure we understand some things here. As he dreams, he sees a vision. And this is not uh, unusual, because God typically did express things through dreams and visions. Very few times do you ever see the concept of God doing something uh, in a face-to-face manner. Actually, what you see, mostly face-to-face, is where God speaks to Abraham, Abraham, and he speaks to Moshe as well. So Avraham and Moshe are oftentimes paired together by the rabbis as having things very, very significant that happen to say both of them the same way. Well, as you look at the many things the rabbis say about Avraham, and you look at the same things they say happened with Moshe, you can actually begin to see that they are also the same things that happened with regard to Yeshua. So even if all of those traditions about the things that happened to Abraham also happened to Moses, even if you don't buy them, even if you're not happy, looking at those in the writings and saying, oh, I don't think they really happy, happened, doesn't matter. What ha- matters is those things did happen to Messiah and they would have meant significant things to those who were putting the dots together. Oh, if this happened to him, our tradition tells us this also happened to Moses. This, ha- this tradition tells us also it happened to Avraham. Interesting. All right. As he lays his head down, it tells us that he had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set on the earth, its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Only there's a problem. Because in Hebrew, the word is not it. The Hebrew indicates a word that is actually very different. There's a prepositional prefix here used, and it's bow. And bow, you may think is Come here, right, Bo? But a prepositional prefix Bo means him. In other words, a way of translating this would be, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on him. This is an interesting thing because the question is, who is the him referred to in this passage? Who is the he? Who is the him? It just doesn't make sense. In fact, you'll find that a couple of times in our Parsha today, where the hymn is mentioned, but it doesn't really tell us specifically defining who it is that the hymn is referring to. So, as you might guess, there are going to be various opinions on this and various meanings applied to it. Because, of course, the rabbis say sleep is symbolic of death. I want you to think about this now for a minute. Sleep is symbolic of death. A ladder is symbolic of that which bridges the gap between the heavens and the earth. In fact, you'll find that mankind seems to have had a fixation with bridging the gap between heaven and earth. Remember when the Tower of Babel was being built? And what was it their goal was? We're going to build a tower. We're going to have such a name and that we're going to build this tower that will stretch into the heavens. You see, the ancient peoples knew that there was a gulf fixed between the heavenly and the earthly. They knew there was a gulf. They knew that it was separate. They don't bother to tell us what created the gulf in the first place, but the ancient peoples were bound and determined to try to bridge that gap. And if you look at many of the ancient places of worship, 
you might uh, recall in, uh, say, South America, Central America, some of the, the uh, pyramid-type structures which had stairs going to the top. And in the ancient Near, Eastern, Near East as well, they had ziggurats. And ziggurats were those things that looked very similar. They were sort of pyramid-like, but they had stairs going from the ground up to the top. And, of course, all of the rituals and things took place at the very top, at the apex. And they were designed because you were, as you ascended those stairs, supposedly bridging the gap between earth and heaven. And so it's not an unlikely dream that he has here with regard to what this, what this means. Uh, a bridging of the gap between heaven and earth. You know, it's interesting, the altars that various peoples would create as well, altars to their various gods, they were seen as also sort of bridging the gap between the earth and heaven, and so sometimes you'd find steps on the altars going up as well. And a God forbid stairs to be carved into the altars that his children were making for him. They were permitted to have a ramp to allow them access to putting the animal sacrifice on it, but he's very clear that stairs were not to be part of the equation. Perhaps, in part, because of what the plain text says. He just said, so that your nakedness not be observed upon it. But also, it's very possible that there were other conclusions that would be drawn by peoples who would have associated the stairs with their own particular framework as well. But I want you to know that there's no difficulty with these angelic messengers going up and coming down. And the reason there's no difficulty from them going up is because they first came down. Think about it for a minute. Yeshua said these words, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, the reason that it is appropriate for him to ascend is because he has first descended. And I, I want you to, 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 to be aware of that. When you think about the latter and the angels were ascending and descending on him, let me read to you, first of all, what uh, the Midrash Rabbah says here. Rabbi Chaya the elder and Rabbi Yanai disagreed. One taught that the angels in Jacob's vision were ascending and descending on the ladder. The other taught they were ascending and descending on Yaakov, on Jacob. Now, how could that be? As a matter of fact, I want to point out another passage that's going to even present more of a mystery, but we can perhaps tie these together. In the Yochanan chapter 1, in John 1, we see something. Yeshua, speaking with well, let's see. Just to give you a little bit of background, Pinchas comes along and meets Yeshua from Nazareth. He goes and he tells Natanel, and he says to him, he's sitting under a fig tree at the time, he says, come and meet the Messiah. And he says, the Messiah? He says, yeah, he's Yeshua from Nazareth. He said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? So he comes along anyway to check this guy out, and what does he do? He says to him, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. First he says, I see that you are a true son of Israel in whom there is no guile. There's no deceit in you. Everything about you is true. And he says, how do you know me? He says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree and I knew you before that. He said, you are the son of God, the Messiah of Israel. That's kind of an abrupt about face, don't you think? Going from a, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, you have to understand, people in that day and age were ripe for a time when Mashiach would come. And there were people who were suspecting Mashiach might be anywhere. 
They're always wondering if this person was Mashiach or that person was Mashiach. So believe me, the rumors would have been flying all over the place. And in this particular matter, Nathanael was not crazy about the idea that Mashiach would come from a place called Nazareth. And there are reasons for that. But it's interesting. Yeshua, in response to him saying, you are the son of God, you are the Mashiach of Israel, he says to him, you believe in me just because I told you I saw you sitting under the fig tree? And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Yeshua is making an allusion to something. He's, of course, making an allusion to the passage we read this morning, this afternoon. He's alluding to that, but it's more than that. If we understand that the Hebrew word, which we have translated into English, upon or on, can actually also be translated a different way. It can be translated because of, or owing to, or in regard to. In other words, let me read, read that to you. And I'm going to reread the statement that Yeshua read, even though we have an English translation of a Greek tra- text. I'm going to read it to you as though he was speaking Hebrew, and this is what it would have meant to you if you were hearing it. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending because of the Son of Man. Can we see any examples of that? Well, let's back up a little bit to his birth, for example. Yes, angelic messengers descended to foretell the birth. They did so to Zechariah and to Miriam and to Yosef. They came to announce his birth to shepherds. They came to warn Yosef about Herod. They came to minister to Yeshua after his stay in the wilderness and after his temptation. They came to open up the tomb. They came to announce the resurrection. They came to witness the ascension. And in the, in the future, we do know the scripture says in the 25th chapter of Matthew that the Son of Man will come in all his glory and all of the angels with him. So we could say, okay, that's one interpretation, but it could be interpreted because of him. What about in Yaakov's case? He dreams that there's a ladder set upward and it's set up at its top into heavens and its bottom upon the earth, and of course the angels are ascending and descending because of him. Very likely, we could also prove this to be true. In which case, we could say that Rabbi Chaya says that they were descending because of him. Okay? That's a possibility. I want to point that out because there are more interpretations than just these two. And we're going to try to look at another one. We do know that Mashiach is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one can ascend to the Father or come to the Father except through him, by him. And of course we know because of him. So they don't necessarily have to be opposed to each other. They can be the same thing. They can be both true. On him and because of him. And that's maybe why Al is used there. This particular word. Okay. 
Let's take a look at something else here. The sages, as they're seeking to find even more examples of what this might mean, I mentioned earlier they said that sleep represents death. But I'd also like to, to, represent, to, to suggest to you that the sages have gone as far as to say that the latter itself may be the temple in Jerusalem. We do know that this particular location, which was Luz, is referred to as Beit El, which is in fact the same location that Avraham took Yitzchak and sacrificed, or was going to sacrifice here. It is the same location where Avraham paid tithes into Melchizedek, because Luz and Salem are referred to as the same place. And Luz and Beit El are referred to as the same place. And all it takes is connecting the right dots in the scripture and finding out that we are indeed in the same location. So perhaps the latter is in the same location that the temple will be. Perhaps the latter is going to be that thing which we find the altar at the bottom. We do know this. We're not talking about a bunch of places around the world where at any given location we're talking about uh, angels going up and down on some ladder. But this is a very particular location, one which God has really, truly set apart. We sang our song earlier, Yerushalayim. We sang about its specialness. We sang about its marvel, the fact that it holds our attention, that the whole world will one day know the definition of peace based upon that city's name. But I do want to point out the sages are saying the latter here is compared to the temple itself because it is the temple by which mankind could approach God. So this, they're seeing the latter as a literal thing, but it had a figurative meaning behind it. All right? It's interesting when Yaakov arises in the morning. It's almost as though if the sages say that sleep is symbolic of death, you have um, him rising from the dead. Indeed, what is the first prayer prayed every morning by Jewish men? We thank God for returning us to consciousness. And it's an interesting turn of the phrase that we use there. It, it speaks of this, the nefesh being restored unto us. Our ability to think and to reason and to hope and to, to uh, emote the nefesh, the soul, returning to us in the mornings. It's not suggesting that we take leave of our bodies, but in many ways, some of us are dead to the world when we sleep. But he gets up in the morning. One could say this is perhaps symbolic of a time when Yaakov, if he is indeed showing us a messianic implications here, that there would be a time when he would actually, in this location go to sleep and then he would awaken but what does he do next he sets up the stone as a pillar and he pours oil on its top now if you happen to know a little bit about this passage and you know that Yaakov speaking of this particular time frame says something interesting you might have a very interesting question as I did where did he get the oil since he left home with only his staff in his hand and his sandals in his, on his feet, where in the world did the oil come from? Well, the sages have a very interesting tradition about this. The sages' tradition is that the oil was poured out supernaturally into his container, which came to him from heaven. It lowered down from heaven to him, and the oil poured into it, 
and he in turn poured it onto the stone. You say, well, Rabbi, that is very, very fanciful. After all, that sounds a lot like what you're saying is the, uh, <laughs> is like a fairy tale. Did those things really happen? It's irrelevant, beloved. You know why it's irrelevant? Because what they portent, what they say, what they're illustrating is very relevant. Oil, as you know in the text, is referred to as the Spirit of God being poured out. And if the Spirit of God is being poured out, why is it that Yaakov says things like, this place is Beit El, it's house of God. But then he says as he pours the, the oil upon the stone, the stone upon which I anoint this is going to become a house of God. Now I think it's important to again uh, state at the outset here of what the popular opinion was of the ancient peoples. The ancient peoples believed in supernatural forces, which is why they worshipped other gods. They're not as, you know, our society today might say is, is mainly a secular society where they worship mankind and his achievements and his, his rule. No. The ancient peoples did believe in supernatural forces. Why? Because they, they showed up. They did stuff. They did things that caused people to take note of the fact that they were supernatural. And indeed, there are supernatural forces around us. However, the nature of those supernatural forces are originating from one of only two sources. Either it is God's working in the affairs of men in his supernatural way, and there's never any question about it, or it is the enemy of God and those who are loyal to him, his demonic hordes, we might say, who in fact are making their way in this world and are trying to get men to turn away from God. And as you know, the enemy is a counterfeiter. Anything God does, the enemy will try to do, either similar to or will try to fight against in a more overt way. But make no mistake, supernatural forces do not occur in and of themselves unless they occur from either a godly source or the, the enemy of God's source. They believed that these different gods occupied different locations geographically, regions. And they believed that to worship them, they wanted a physical representation of the spirit that they knew dwelt there. So they'd carve something. They'd carve it out of wood or stone. These people were not morons. They weren't idiots. They weren't saying to themselves, oh my goodness, I have to get this ear a little bit lower or else this little stone is going to get angry with me. They carved something with their own hands, not believing that when they were done, it would take a life of its own, but rather they believed that the spiritual force which dwelt in that location would come to inhabit that stone. In fact, they called the stones they created animated or living stones. They believed that the, physical, the, the spiritual force would come to live within their carved idol and that as they worshipped it, they were worshipping in reality the spirit behind it. That's what they believed. I think it's interesting here that if you consider what Yaakov says is going to happen, he says this stone will become a house of God. Which stone was he referring to? Well, if we understand that Yaakov is a messianic shadow and a type for us, we could say possibly he's referring to the stone, the stone which the builders would reject perhaps as the psalmist says. The Even stone, which would become later on the Rosh Pina, the, the pillar, the, 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 the uh, capstone of the corner. 
the Rosh Pina. However, don't forget that Yeshua referred to himself as the temple. Yeshua said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. And it says in the text that they didn't realize he was speaking of himself. In other words, he was speaking of himself as being the very dwelling place of the divine. He was God inhabited as we understand it. So let me recap a little bit. We're also told that if you and I are in correct relationship with God, that he has his Ruach, his Holy Spirit, which is denoted, by the way, by the physical oil. Physical oil is representative of the spiritual Holy Spirit of God. He's not only going to pour it out upon us, which is an anointing process. By the way, think about it for a second. Here is Yaakov sleeping. He awakens. After he awakens, you have the anointing of the stone. The anointing is the word Mashiach in Hebrew. But it goes onward. You and I are told that we are going to be part of the building process of the greater building structure that God is making, his temple, his, his living stones, he calls us. He calls us living stones. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because, in fact, two things. Number one, we do have hearts which are made of stone, which he then is going to transform the hearts of flesh. But he does this by inhabiting us. He does this by literally taking up residence within us, and his Ruach HaKodesh becomes the very thing that causes us to become alive. So while we were dead, and while we were stony of heart, and while we were made from the clay, from the dirt, it is because of the Ruach of God, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, breathing into us that we even took on a life. And even that was symbolic of what would come later on when we truly came to life because he came to live within us, his Ruach in us. It's as if the physical breath came into us to begin with, to give us physical life. And the spiritual breath of the Ruach comes into us second, so that we may have spiritual life as well. Okay, so we begin to see the, 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 the reason why this anointing is important. And why it was that the sages believed it was important for us to know that the oil came from heaven. Because indeed that's where the Ruach HaKodesh comes from. You understand? Alright. Don't forget that God did say regarding those implements in the temple, the tabernacle that we would be making on later on for, for uh, his use, they would also have anointing put upon them as well. All right. It's interesting, he rose early in the morning, it says. And then it says he, he took the stone and he moved it. And then he poured oil on top of it. I don't know if some of you are seeing the symbolism here. But if sleep is representative of death, and Yaakov is the type and the shadow of Mashiach here, then we could say that clearly it was while he was asleep that we see this bridge between heaven and earth being visible for the first time, you might say. Furthermore, it's arising early in the morning, he then moves the stone, and then, of course, he pours oil upon the top of it, which speaks of his calling of Mashiach, his, his being placed into the office. Okay, now, it's not a perfect picture, but I want to just point that out to you. And I want to go ahead now to the 29th chapter and we begin to see in verse 2. He looked and he saw a well in the field and behold three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the top of the well was large. We're told the stone was large. We're also told that there were some who could not or would not move it until such time as it was appropriate. 
There was going to come a time for watering all the flocks at once, and that was not yet. And uh, it may be because of the inability physically that people could not move the stone. But if that's true, we have then a very interesting happening here. We are told that after he saw Rachel, and after he saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and the flocks of Laban, that he immediately went and rolled off the stone from the well, and he did so by himself. The sages say that that was superhuman strength. They said it was a miracle, and they said it was because he saw Rachel, he had this in him. Now some of you are going, yeah, well, he's trying to show off. Obviously, he's got to prove he's macho. After all, he's been accused of being smooth-skinned, living in tents. I think the fact that he was smooth-skinned, living in tents, and was not a man so much of the field makes the miracle all the more indicative for us. I think it's very important to realize the sages are looking at this many, many ways. One particular rabbi, uh, Rabbi Kama Barchanina, also offers six different interpretations by himself and others offer more as to what this is all about. And I think the more you look at the different interpretations of this and say, yeah, these are literal events. They did happen. They're historical, but they could have pointed to some things. And man, if they did... What could they show us about Messiah? I'd like to um, offer one particular interpretation of this. It's perhaps not one the rabbis are keen on, but let's take a look at it anyway. I'd like to suggest that you think of the well as a tomb. I'd like you to think of the stone over the mouth of the well as the stone over the well of the, uh, the mouth of the tomb. And the fact is, these tombs are reused. They are used from generation to generation to generation. I would suggest that there's going to be an appropriate time for the tombs to be opened up in the end of days. But that time did not arrive before the stone was rolled away from the mouth of this well in a supernatural way before the time when all the rest of the flocks would be watered from it. The water from the well, of course, very likely is going to represent the Ruach HaKodesh like the oil did. Just suggestions for you. I have to tell you that um, Rabbi Arne Kaplan wrote the book Waters of Eden, the mikvah he's referring to, the fact is, he said, the waters of the mikvah are representative of two different things. And as you read the very beginning of the book, he explains that the two things they represent are, one, the grave, as, as you go into the grave, having come out of the world in which you live, you go into the grave, into an environment where you cannot live, you're underwater. And that one day coming up out of that water, again, he says, is representative of the resurrection. Therefore, he said, the mikvah itself, that is being immersed in water and coming out, is representative of death, burial, resurrection. But he also says, it's representative of the womb. From the womb, an environment, an area where today you and I could not live. In that environment, it would not be suitable for us now that we are in the air and breathing air, oxygen. So we come out of that. And how is it that a person goes into it? That's an interesting thing because Rabbi Arya Kaplan, this Orthodox rabbi, states very clearly, in this sense, it's like being 
born again. A phrase that has taken on a different meaning for him than it would take on for the average non-Jewish person who has heard this phrase and used it frequently. Being born again. The ancient rabbis believed that going to the mikvah was like having a birth again. A rebirth. As a matter of fact, don't you find it interesting that when Nicodemus, Nakdemon, comes to see Yeshua at nighttime and he asks him the question, he says, what must I do? He, Yeshua says, unless a man is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says, he says a man, I don't, don't find it strange when I say to you, a man must be born again. Nicodemus' answer is, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And it's interesting because this was still, at that time, a very well-known school of thought to do this. And Yeshua's answer is quite revelatory. He says, how can you be a teacher in Israel and not know this? You mean you're a teacher in Israel? He wasn't just a teacher in Israel. He was, a, he was on the Sanhedrin. And he did not know this. Okay? If we think of the well representing the tomb now, the water inside the well, in a sense, being the Ruach, and through the Ruach you have resurrection, you have life. You then have an interesting thing, because the rabbis say two miracles happened at that well. One is he had the superhuman strength to roll the water off. Two of them. What's the second one? They say the second one is that the water inside the well began to bubble up, came up to the top and overflowed. And it watered the flocks that were there already. Even though it says that he watered the flocks of Laban, his mother's brother, the rabbis tell us that the water in the well overflowed. Now, did it happen? Don't know. Wasn't there. Doesn't say so in the scripture, so I tend to be skeptical. But you know the problem here? Is that we're looking at this thing in a far too narrow perspective. Because if we can understand that when Mashiach did his duty of coming forward and, and, and dying, being buried and being raised up from the dead. We do know that some did arise. Some did arise. The graves were opened. Some did come out. It was a foreshadowing, a foretaste. And you know what? It was not at the end of days when you might expect it to be done. It was done prematurely, you might say. But done prematurely in such a way that it was he would be the one who would lead and others would follow. Perhaps we have the arrival of all the flocks which have not yet happened as being all those people who would later need to be resurrected from the dead if they came to the grave. So we have flocks there. It does mention three flocks there. Don't know that I can point to a real significance about the three, the mention of three. We have Rachel come on the scene. Rachel's appearance you know it's amazing when you think about all of it, the association with her one single word comes to mind for me sorrow we tend to think of Rachel as having it all because after all she was the, the good looking one of the family you say I want to show you that the very first thing you see associated with her is Yaakov weeping you say weeping well he was maybe weeping for relief maybe he was weeping for joy doesn't matter Great emotion is surrounding this woman. Every time you look, you're going to see there is sorrow. There is weeping. And if we're going to look at the mothers of Israel, they do in fact represent different, different aspects of Mashiach as well. So we could say that the 
the bride of Yaakov, who is going to be the mother of Yosef, she will be closely associated with the sorrows and the suffering of what happens. It's interesting, too, that we're told in Jeremiah, we're told in Matthew and Matthew, that Rachel is one who weeps for her children. Speaking, of course, of a time when Herod would be killing babies in Beit Lechem, right near her, birth, her, her, excuse me, her burial place. But I would suggest, if you look at the profound sorrow associated with Rachel, we begin to see that this is also associated with a different aspect of Mashiach himself. I mentioned the fact that the, the, the rabbis have said about the, the, the swelling up of the water. Let me read to you a little bit here. It says in the, it's in the Targums you find this, that it welled up like a flowing spring. It would overflow the mouth of the well. You know what the interesting thing is? They use the term Mayim Chaim, living water, as they are, as they are giving us this description. Rabbi Hama Bar Hanina, I said, mentioned six different descriptions. He speaks of the well representing the Holy Spirit of God. He speaks of the stone representing the rituals which are being performed when people assemble for the festival of Sukkot. Okay, so one of the things he's looking at is the possibility this whole thing is about the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember that the priests were going to pour out Mayim Chaim, living water, in the same area that he had laid his head the night before. Remember that? At the temple. They're pouring it out over the altar at the temple. And so, they, he refers to the fact that the gathering of the flocks represents the people gathering together for the festival of Sukkot. Hmm. He says, when the water began to gush forward from the well... It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God, this Orthodox rabbi. And by the way, he quotes Rabbi Hoshaya, saying, Why was the water-pouring ritual of Sukkot, that is the, the Beit HaShoeva, called the rejoicing of the house of the water-pouring? He says, Because from there they drank of the Holy Spirit of God. Hmm. It's interesting because during Sukkot, Yeshua does make the point and says, if anyone would believe in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He says, then come, let him come to me and drink if anyone's thirsty. In other words, I'm the guy to whom is referring when it says water will flow from the inner, my innermost being. So we could say here that the well is Yeshua himself. There's a lot of different ways of looking at this. We do know, when you read this in Yochanan 7, it goes on to explain that the Master was referring to the Ruach HaKodesh when he said this. But this I spoke, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Verse 39. Uh, chapter 7, verse 39. All right. We want to talk about the names of the sons as we continue on. 
And as we go through the names, I think you'll see that each one of the sons' names are going to represent a different aspect of Mashiach as well. Every one of them. You'll notice that in the translation I was reading this morning, that the English translators of the Hebrew text have chosen to use a couple of words which frankly are unfortunate. Okay, I think some of you are catching on to the humor there. Let's take a look at the first son. The first one's born. His name is Ruvain. Remember that the word Yireh means to see. You saw this in last week's Parsha. To look and to see, Yireh. And so it is the root word from the beginning of Ruvain, which is in fact two words. See or look, a son. Okay? So we could say then, that this is uh, the first name given because, hey, look, a son. See a son. How does this tie in with Mashiach? Well, it's interesting because in the Targums, as you read this particular passage about the birth and the naming process, and we're going to refer to the Targums for the duration of the names here. You're going to see it over and over again. It goes back to different aspects of God's delivering the people. And so the, in the Targums, it says it this way. See a son... And this is a prophecy regarding the redemption from Egypt, as the scripture says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Hmm. So in other words, the seeing this is a son, they are saying, the rabbis are saying, is tied to the fact that God saw the people in Egypt, his son in, his, in Egypt was suffering and needed deliverance, which is, of course, setting the stage for Mashiach to come. So one could say it's the bad news before the good news. Would you agree? The next son is named Shimon. Then she conceived again and bore a son and then said, because Hashem has heard that I am unloved. He's heard that I am unloved. And therefore, he's given me the son also. So she named him Shimon. The root Shema in there, hearing and doing, is an amazing thing. So the Targums say this. So God heard... They're groaning. Again, it's referring to the Egyptian slavery. So God heard their, their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And therefore, they're saying that when she called him Shimon, it is because Hashem had heard also the groaning of the people. You see how we're setting this up for the Redeemer to come upon the scene? Each of the names, according to the sages, points to something about our deliverance. The third son, Levi. She conceived again and bore him a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. He will become attached to me in emotional unity is the way you really ought to see this. He's going to be joined with me in his heart because I have borne him three sons. Levi then was more of a prayer and more of a hope. It's interesting. Because the Targum goes on to say, she says, I have borne him three sons, therefore he's named Levi. It goes on to say that she said, thus will it be that my children shall be lava to serve before Hashem. And she's speaking of the later day when the priesthood will be united together, serving Hashem together. So again, she's saying that this third son is going to also indicate a time when Levi will be called to serve before Hashem. And you know the priesthood is very much representative of Mashiach. The fourth son, Yehuda. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Hashem. And therefore she named him Yehuda. Hmm. 
Yehuda. There is a couple of different ideas here. Yehuda is, a, is, is a, we, we literally translate this to praise Hashem, but it comes from Yada, which is an interesting word. Now, it is not the Yada that you may think you know. Because the Yada you're thinking of is spelled Yud Dalet Ayin, whereas this is spelled Yud Dalet Hey. And the Yada you are thinking of is the one about the intimate knowledge that God has with his people and his people with him. This is different because Yada is to praise, to thank God, to, to give him praise. And so it's interesting, the Targum says, she added on to this, for from this son of mine king shall come forth, and from him shall spring David the king, who shall offer praise before Hashem, Yada before Hashem. Now, could she have known King David was coming? Not likely. But the Targum still rendered this way, because we are to see the relationship of David, who is the messianic forebear, and this particular son, who will be from this tribe that Mashiach will come. By the way, both words, yada, have the root word of hand in there, yad, which is an indicator of an action to do. In fact, Yehuda is really, in a sense, to shoot out praise or to take, um, to direct praise with one's hand, one says. Okay? Let's go on to the next word. The next word is Dan. Dan is the next son born. Raquel said, God has... Well, the word, some translations rendered, is vindicated me. He has searched me and found me innocent, or he is, he is pleading my case, you might say. Some translations say he has judged me. And has indeed heard my voice and given me a son, therefore she named him Dan, which means to judge. And literally, to be a judge does not mean to be the heavy-handed executioner. To be a judge means to decide properly a matter. And I think it's fascinating when you consider the Targum, it says that God has judged me, she says. And it says in the Targum, Yonatan, that she's looking forward to a day when Shimshon, Samson, will be born to her particular tribe, who's going to be a different kind of a judge, one of great might, supernatural might, who's going to bring great destruction upon those who have sworn Israel's destruction. Interesting. We are told regarding Mashiach that he's going to be the one who will judge the living and the dead, Second Timothy 4 says. We're also told in Isaiah chapter 11 that he will not judge by the sight of his eyes nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will make judgments for the poor and the needy. With righteousness. So the concept of Dan being a description of the one who would come as a judge, that's very much a part of a messianic picture here. The next name is Naphtali. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. She named him then Naphtali. Interesting. Naphtali means to wrestle. Rachel in the Targums, though, goes on to say that this wrestling was more than a physical match. You don't find her going over there and saying to her sister, all right, Put up your arm, we're going to have a wrestling match here. Or, let's see if we can, who's going to outdo each other? 
There's another kind of wrestling involved. So the Targum goes on to say, Even so are my children to be redeemed from the hand of their enemies when they shall wrestle in prayer before Hashem. We do know this. According to the book of Hebrews, regarding Mashiach, it says this, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his faithfulness. Hmm. So we realize that the wrestling has to do with the great wrestling and agonizing in prayer Mashiach is, has and is doing on our behalf. The next son is Gad, and this is the one that the translation chose to render luck, unfortunately. There is two ways of looking at the word Gad. It can mean two things. It can mean luck. It can mean Flip of the coin, a mindless sort of thing which people have tried to give a mind to. People, when they say things like good luck or um, luckily this happened, they are in a sense trying to attribute a purpose and, a, and a, a mind behind what they are themselves saying is a mindlessness. So it doesn't really work. But I'd like to suggest that the other particular translation of this word, which means a troop or a, a group of people, But they all come from an interesting word, and that word is, it is gaid, but it also means to penetrate or to overcome. So, Leah said, a troop has come, some translations render it. So she named him Gad, or I have overcome, I have penetrated through, she named him Gad. So it is not necessarily the concept of luck that this is referring to, but perhaps it's a double meaning. Perhaps it's a tongue-in-cheek. I do know that the two idols that came back from, uh, from Babylon after our captivity, people had a real hard time letting go of, were the idols of Gad and Meni, Meni, which were not physical idols, but they were, in fact, spiritual ideas. But let me tell you how the Targum uh, tends to render this. Targum Rishalami says this, Good fortune or good luck is coming because of the feastings of the nations will be cut off. Now, what does she mean by that, if that's indeed what she said? The question here is, if you look at what the Midrash states as well, is there a time when the nations are going to have some way of seeing a feast but unable to participate in it? Yes. In the world to come, it says, I shall prepare for you a great table and the idolaters will see it. They'll be ashamed. And as it says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We do know this. Luke chapter 13 says, And they will come from the east and west and from north and south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. It's interesting because when you can sit in the presence of your enemies, reclining at your table without fear, then the protection is not your own. It's God's protection over you. But it also says here in the, in the Targums, it's stating that the Nations will be cut off from the feastings. They will not be permitted to take place, take part in it. The next name is Asher. Asher has been rendered again fortunate, unfortunately. Asher is a word you'll find, for example, in um, the beginning, first word in the Psalms is Asher. Asher Haish. What does it mean? Happy or blessed? That's the way we ought to see this. So Leah said, Happy am I or blessed am I, for women will call me happy. 
And she named him Asher. I see, by the way, a messianic shadow here as well. I see another time when a woman would be called blessed or happy based upon the fact that she had a son. Miriam says in Luke 1.48, For behold, from this time on, generations will call me blessed. And indeed they did. Luke chapter 11 says, And one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed, Hashem is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. The 11th chapter, 27th verse of Luke. Issachar. Literally, it means wages, payment, sakhar. This is interesting because God uses this with regard to the reward promised to the righteous. He calls them sakhar. He says to Avraham in Genesis 15, your reward, your sakhar will be great. We are told in Isaiah that the salvation, Yeshua of Hashem, comes bringing sakhar, reward, and recompense with him. Reward for good, recompense for bad. Isaiah 62:11. Behold, the Lord Hashem is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his sakhar is with him. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. Hmm. He says almost identical same words in the book of Revelation, 22nd chapter, when he says, Behold, I come quickly. And my zakhar, my, my reward, it would be in, in the Greek, he would have said zakhar in Hebrew, is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. So in Issachar, the reward, the wages are mentioned here. Again, indicative of Mashiach. Zevulun. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift, and now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons, and so she named him Zevulun. There's three related words used here. He has endowed me, Zavad, with a good gift, Zeved. Now my husband will dwell with me, Zaval, because I have borne him six sons, and so she calls him Zavulun. Endowed, a gift, and dwelling, all indicative of Mashiach. The Targum goes on to say, and thus shall his children receive a good portion. Isaiah says, look down from your heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation, Zavul. Isaiah 63. 1 Kings 8, 13, Shlomo says, I have surely built you a lofty zavul, a house, a place for your dwelling forever. And we are told that Mashiach is going to bring us to uh, rabbis. There are three means in Hebrews 12:22, and there we will zaval dwell together. Is the way it will be rendered in Hebrew. Hmm. And then we see this interesting thing, according to. Um, the rabbis, there are three keys mentioned here. One of the keys is mentioned here in 30 verse 22 and it says, God remembered Rachel and God gave, gave heed to her and he opened up her womb. You say, okay, he opened her womb. They say there, that means there's one key, which is to the womb. There's another key, which is to reign. And there's another key, which is to resurrection. These three keys, they say God is very careful to say over and over again, he would trust these to no one, not to any messenger, not to any angel, only he himself holds these. And then after all of that disclaimer, they say, except for Eliyahu Hanavi. Elijah was given these three keys. Well, sure. Given the key to raise from the dead. Given the key to stop the rain from heaven. 
But each time he had one, he had to give another one back because he couldn't hold all three at the same time. Only Hashem could do so. So they make a great deal of saying all of this. And the word opened is patach, or unlocked, which is why they do this. They say a key, which is mafteach, would be required to open this. Rabbi Yochanan said, The Holy One, blessed be he, keeps three keys in his own hands, does not entrust them to the hand of an agent. They have the key of rain, key of life, and the key of the resurrection of dead. The key of the rain, because it is written in Devarim 28.12, Hashem will unlock for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season. The key of life, for it is written in Bereshi's 30.22, then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and unlocked her womb. And the key of the resurrection for the de- from the dead, for it is written, again, in Yechezkel 37.13, Thirteen. Then you will know that I am Hashem when I have unlocked your graves. Okay? So, not to be entrusted to anyone, and even in the case of Eliyahu who had received a dispensation, he had to give one back to get another one. It's like, okay, I've got one key here, I need to give this one back before I can get another one, according to the Talmud. God said to Eliyahu, these three keys have not been entrusted to an agent. The keys of life, that is birth, reign, and resurrection. Shall it be said that those keys are in the hands of the disciple and only one remains in the hands of the master? Return the key of rain and then take this one, he says. This is the Talmud again. What's the point of this? It is to demonstrate something. Because Mashiach has all three keys simultaneously. Mashiach says, don't be afraid. I'm the first, the last, the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death, of Hades and of the grave. He's the one who controls the rain in the Messianic kingdom, Zechariah chapter 14. And he, of course, is the one who demonstrated the unlocked womb of the virgin. Hmm. Yosef is the last name in our Parsha. Yosef, one who is added. It's interesting. The Targum Yonatan says it was when Rachel bore Yosef, Yaakov said, by the Holy Spirit concerning the house of Yosef, they are to be aflamed to concern the house of consume the house of Esau. And he said, Therefore I will not be afraid of Esau and his legions. Targum Yonatan said this, based upon Genesis thirty. And it's actually quoting Ovadia, Obadiah the prophet, regarding the Messianic age, in which King Mashiach will burn up the house of Esau like a stubble, it says in Ovadia one eighteen. Of course, Benyamin who's coming in next week's Parsha, will be also an answer. Rachel, the woman of sorrow, the one who actually dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benyamin, is going to want to call him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. Yet, the son of my sorrow becomes the son of my right hand, Benyamin. This is going to be our next week's glimpse. At the very conclusion of the Parsha, he, coming back to the land of promise, says he meets angels, the Talmud actually gives us a lot about this. It says that there were 120 myriad of angels that met him. They were dancing and singing and rejoicing because he was coming back to the land. This could be indicative of two different things, beloved. One, in the end of days, Jewish people returning to our land after a prolonged period of exile, over 2,000 years and over 20 years in Yaakov's case. And it could be that God is rejoicing and the angels are greeting us and returning us to our land rejoicing. But there's another aspect of this. If Yaakov indeed is representative of Mashiach, as he's representing Mashiach, what could we say? Indeed, 
as he returns, he returns with myriads of angels, all of the singing and rejoicing that will accompany it as well. The word return is an interesting word because it is shuv, teshuvah. And it always indicates that we come back from sin to righteousness. Indeed, one could say that Yaakov coming back to the land was giving us a picture of that teshuvah. If I'm going to leave you with one thought this week, beloved, it would be this. We need to return in more than one way to Hashem. We need to return to our land and we need to return to Him. And it is the shuv idea of repentance that comes along with doing that thing which comes at the conclusion of our time of exile, Teshuvah. Let us pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, I pray that our time together would be rich and well spent. I pray that uh, what we've learned today could be put into practice in our lives. I pray that we would do so, that we may honor you with what we do as well as what we say. I pray this B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Vihuneha Yisa Adonai Panavaleka Vyasem Lakaha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and place it upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.